Well, welcome back again to our study in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We're looking at chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 uh, in this lesson, and I hope that uh, it has some real encouragement for all of us as we study it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word, and we thank you that you have maintained it. Lord, we bless you that you have revealed yourself to us not only in the creation, but also in your Son, Yeshua, and in the living word as well as the written word, we bless you, Lord, that you have not left us unavailable to know you, but you have revealed yourself to us and you have drawn us unto yourself, and we bless you and we thank you for that, Lord. We know that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from you, and we thank you for all that you have given us, especially for our Savior, Yeshua, for your Ruach HaKodesh, and that you dwell with us and in us, as we anticipate the coming of our Savior Yeshua and spending eternity with you. And even though this is beyond our ability and our finite thinking to grasp entirely, we know that your word is true, and we trust you, O Lord, that you would strengthen us and enable us to live as shining lights of your grace and mercy in this dark world. So we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless your word to us tonight as we study it together. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV, and we're going to read the entire third chapter of Philippians. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Messiah Yeshua and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Messiah. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Messiah, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or the Torah, but that which comes through faith in Messiah, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Messiah Yeshua has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. 
Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Messiah. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Well, once again, uh, Paul has given us much to think about. He's used words and phrases that we're not always used to using, and so it's important for us to listen to what he has said, to ask the Spirit of God to open it to us in our hearts our minds and apply it to our lives in our daily living. So we start uh, with verse 2. We just finished with verse 1 last week, and he is talking in the previous verse how it is to conduct ourselves as those who walk in the footsteps of the Messiah. And he says that he has written this again. Uh, He's told it to them again. And he said, it is a safeguard for you. That is, the truth will enable us to do what God wants us to do as we uh, commit ourselves to the truth. And so he goes on now in verse 2. To warn us, and I think this is particularly germane to our movement, whatever you want to call it. I don't think there's any perfect designation, but the so-called Messianic movement. Uh, I think this is written very much for our good, and we should take it to heart. Because, unfortunately, as is true in every historical movement that uh, has sought to return back to the scriptures, and to live them out. In every movement that we have uh, documented in, in church history, we see all kinds of dispersion. We see all kinds of uh, division. And it is because there are those who make themselves out to be teachers who are not well grounded in the word and don't really have a, a heart and a desire to teach the word, they're looking for something new, something novel, something that people will say, oh boy, I haven't heard that before, that's fantastic. And in so doing, they lead so many people astray. I'm just amazed, uh, because now in our times of modern uh, America and in the world, we have the ability to Uh, reach people over the internet and there's teachers that are having whole groups of you know thousands of people following their teachings that they have never met face to face but there's so much ability to uh, give teachings and let others have them by way of the internet and books and so forth and so on and we are called again as those who are forging our way in this movement to regain our understanding of the Torah, to bring it into our lives of faith in Yeshua, and to obey God as he has given us his word to obey. Well, the same thing was happening in the time of Paul. This new movement, it it sprung out of 
the Judaisms of the first century and earlier, but it was particularly a gathering in of the Gentiles, right? Because we know at Shavuot there in Acts 2, the Spirit was given in order that they may begin in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then go to throughout the world giving the gospel. It was the time of harvest of the nations. And we see immediately, as we come into the late 1st century and, and 2nd and 3rd centuries, we see all of these different factions and all of these divisions. And the same thing is happening, of course, in our day within the so-called Messianic movement. So my emphasis, as you well know, is to study the Scriptures, learn the Scriptures, know what the Scriptures say, and commit ourselves to following them. Now, he starts out then in verse 2, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Well, we'll start with this first one, Beware of the dogs. Having admonished the believers in Yeshua, who comprised the Philippian community to rejoice in the Lord, that is, to recognize and glory in the salvation which Yeshua had secured for those who had come to saving faith in him, Paul now gives a clear and emphatic warning regarding false teachers who would seek to lead them astray. Now, does a false teacher always know he's leading them astray? Some, I think, are convinced that what they're teaching is true. Even when it's when it's set against the truth of the scriptures, it's shown to be false. Yet, they're not, some of them, uh, anxiously wanting to lead people down a path of destruction. But if it's not aligning with the scriptures then there's no safeguard. There's no way to judge whether it's true or not. If it's based upon the Scriptures and a clear understanding of the Scriptures, then we can trust it to be true. I've been reading a book recently, and I'm just amazed at how much of it, and it comes from a very well-known Messianic group, uh, I'm amazed at how much of it is just contrary to faith, and contrary to the Scriptures. And yet, I'm sure that it will be purchased, and I'm sure there will be others who will uh, follow it. We need to commit ourselves to what Paul is saying here. Beware of the dogs. He skillfully constructs his warning in rhythmic and poetic fashion. You wouldn't get this unless you were reading it in the Greek, but if you do read it in the Greek, you'll see uh, what, how it is, but it, this is no doubt so that it could be easily remembered and followed. He does this first by repeating the word uh, beware, which really means look out, blepete. It's the word to look, to see, uh, or observe, to pay close attention. He does it three times. And he's telling us to pay close attention. Don't skip over this. Moreover, the fact that this imperative or command is repeated three times, shows the great emphasis Paul places upon this admonition, and that he expected his readers, and us, to appreciate the gravity of his words. It's very common in ancient Semitic uh, works that if something is repeated three times, it's like, okay, one time, and second time, an emphasis, and a third time, an extreme emphasis. And that's what's happening here. 
and you add to this the three designations grouped with beware are all begin with the same Greek letter, kappa. So we have kunos, which is dogs, kakus, which is evil, and katatomain, which is cutting in pieces. And they all start with the K sound. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of rhythmic and it's easy to remember. He uses three designations for people about whom he gives a stern warning to the believing community in Philippi. Now, I would have to say, and I'm reading between the lines here, but I don't think Paul would have given such a strong warning if there wasn't some sense that he had that there were those in the community at Philippi who were being pulled away or were uh, listening to some of these false teachings and accepting what they say. The first designation is dogs, kunos, a word of derision used in the Greco-Roman world to denote persons who were transient, indecent, vagabonds, and so forth. Well, this is because in the Greco-Roman world, packs of dogs roamed the countryside, as well as in some environs of the cities, eating human filth and garbage, and even attacking people. Now, we we have this documented in non-biblical literature from the early time of the Greco Roman world. And so a dog in our in our uh, times, in our communities, dogs are pets. And many people have them and love them and take care of them and they wag their tails and everybody pats their head and so forth and so on. That's not the way it was in the Greco Roman world in which Paul lived. You didn't get around those dogs because they just as soon eat your hand as eat something else because they roamed as packs, and uh, they attacked people, and they did whatever they could to get food and so forth and so on. So when Paul uses this term, beware of the dogs, it's a very derogatory term. He's not pulling any punches here. <laughs> he's, saying, he's saying it like it is. And to whom does he refer? I think it's quite clear that Paul chose such a negative term to describe Judaizers. That is, those who were teaching that only ethnically born Jews or Gentiles who underwent a quote-unquote official conversion to Judaism, thus giving them approved Jewish identity, were received by God as his people. Well, there were those that were saying, if you're not Jewish, you don't have a chance. Now, the fact that they wanted the, the, uh, the non-Jews to join them would mean that they had to go through a conversion and they had to pledge themselves to follow whatever uh, teacher or rabbi was doing the, the conversion, so-called, and so forth. In the scriptures, in the apostolic scriptures, there's not anything that talks about a Gentile gaining Jewish status. And so, was that going on? Yes, there were Gentiles who were coming in, and there were Jewish people who were saying, Jewish believers, or at least they professed to be believers, who were telling them, you really can't be part of us unless you go through this conversion and take on Jewish identity. Unfortunately, we see some of this in our own movement. I've been in at least one, I think maybe two, uh, Messianic uh, communities, as I have had opportunity to travel and teach in various places. And they make it very clear. In fact, there was one that I went to that uh, on the door 
On the outside door, it had a plaque that said, This synagogue is for Jews and their family only. In another one, they said, they made it very clear that only Jewish people that can prove their ethnicity are called to read the Torah or are allowed to touch the Torah scroll as it's paraded about, and so forth and so on. Well, that's absolutely contrary to what Paul is teaching us here. So these whom Paul refers to as dogs, their teaching was that only Jews and proselytes who maintained a Torah-observant lifestyle could be assured of God's favor, blessing, and final salvation. Such teaching was absolutely contrary to the truth God revealed from the beginning. For even Abraham was justified, that is, declared righteous, in God's sight on the basis of his faith in God's promised Redeemer, and not on the basis of his good works. Genesis 15, 5-6 And he, that is God, took him aside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. There is the very act of faith on the part of Abraham. And later on, in Genesis 22, verses 16 through 18, we read, But by myself I have sworn, the Lord says, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. But why did he obey his voice? It's because God had reckoned him as righteous, had given him the gift of faith earlier on. And so we see that Abraham is living that out. And when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac, he didn't delay. He went about to do it, but God spared him that and offered a substitute which was a foreshadow of Yeshua himself. And so he received this covenant promise in your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And we know that that seed is singular, not plural, as Paul teaches us, and it refers to Yeshua. Here we see a perfect example, teaching us that it was Abraham's faith that enabled him to obey God, even in obeying the most difficult of God's commandments to offer up his own son Isaac. Of course, Isaac was spared. But Abraham was willing to do whatever God instructed him to do, and such obedience is the fruit of genuine faith in God and his promises, as the author of Hebrews makes clear. Also talking about this incident with Abraham, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So the writer to the Hebrews tells us explicitly that this was a type of the Messiah. And it's as though Isaac was offered and came back to life, even as Yeshua offered himself fully and then rose from the dead on the third day. Paul likewise establishes this foundational truth in Romans 
that to be received as righteous by God is gained through faith in Yeshua's substitutionary sacrifice and not through works. We read in Romans 4, 1 through 5, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as that which is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So, there's a lot of discussion going on these days about this very uh, important biblical fact. Does God credit to us the righteousness of Yeshua? The answer is yes. And then you hear people say, well, if that's the case, Tim, then people are just going to say, well, I don't have to do anything, and I just live, you know, however I want, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in, and I can never be kicked out, and it uh, doesn't matter how I live. What that kind of mentality forgets is that when God redeems us by giving us the gift of faith and giving us the Spirit, His very Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelling with us and in us, it changes us from the inside out. We want to please Him. We are grieved when we sin against Him. We seek to grow in our love for Him and in our willingness to serve Him as His witnesses here and now. This is clearly taught to us by Yeshua Himself, that, the, that one would know the reality of a person by their fruit. Even as a fruit tree bears a particular kind of fruit, an apple tree gives apples, so the believer in the Messiah brings forth the fruit of righteousness. And it is our desire to grow in that, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and to be more and more his witness of his grace and his mercy. So, is it Yeshua's righteousness that is accredited to us? Yes. He has paid for all of our sin. And what will the enemy seek to do? To tell us, no, 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 you're not good enough. No, no, you, you, you'll, you'll never make it. In so doing, he spits upon Yeshua, or tries to. And Shul will have nothing to do with it, because his spirit says, No, I am in the Messiah. What does that mean? When the Father sees me, he sees me in his Son, righteous as he is. Surely the person who has exercised saving faith in Yeshua will evidence this by living a righteous life. But conformity to the righteousness of God in one's life is the fruit of saving faith, not the means of gaining right standing before the Almighty. Thus, for Paul to use the designation dogs identifies the very debased character of those who were teaching that one could garner God's approval by doing what they considered to be righteous deeds. Isaiah spoke to this matter, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So apart from true faith in God and His Redeemer, Yeshua, all that mankind considers as righteous deeds are recorded in the divine court as equivalent to a filthy garment. He says, 
all of your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And if you read the Hebrew there, it's shocking. I put it in the footnote there. That filthy garment is actually the Hebrew word for a piece of cloth that a woman uses once a month. It's that which is discarded. Therefore, let us be diligent to recognize that those who claim Jewish ethnicity to be the basis for being received as righteous before God are teaching a falsehood. Moreover, whether Jew or non-Jew, all who are in Messiah Yeshua are equally loved by God and adopted into his family as eternally his chosen ones. This is why there should be no distinction. No, is it fine for people to say I'm Jewish and another person to say I'm not and be one in the Lord together in the same community? Absolutely. Why? Because it's in that context that the promise made to Abraham is seen to being completed. All the nations of the earth would be blessed. Not just one nation. Not just the nation of Israel. All of the nations would be blessed. How is that? By making Jew and Gentile one in the Lord. Is it therefore important for Gentiles to maintain that ethnicity and for Jews to maintain the uh, Jewish ethnicity in terms of who they are? Absolutely. Does it make one better than the other? No. We are together one saved by God's grace through the death of Yeshua and his resurrection. He intercedes for us now, all of us, Jew and Gentile. And we are one together in his family. So one's physical identity or ethnicity does not garner greater or lesser standing before God. All who are in Messiah are equally redeemed and loved by the Father and kept by the Ruach. So, this would be how Paul would label those who put an emphasis upon Jewish identity as being more important within the body of the Messiah. No. Equal, equally important. All people created in the image of God are important. But those that God has saved and drawn unto himself have absolute access to him through the Spirit. We have been adopted into his family. And he made a choice to do that before he ever created the universe, according to Ephesians 1, 5 and following. He says, secondly, beware of the evil workers. When one consults the leading Christian commentators on this phrase, it is not uncommon to find that some of them consider this designation to reference those who were teaching that the followers of Yeshua were still to live in accordance with the Torah. Well, that's why some of us are labeled as evil workers, because we're telling people we should do all that we can to obey God's Torah. Now, there's much that we can't do at this point. I recognize that. But we ought to do all that we can. Why? Because obedience to God is the mark that we are His. Now, I'm not... Pointing my finger at those who say, no, we don't have to keep the Sabbath. No, we don't have to eat kosher. No, we don't have to keep the festivals and so forth. No, that's not for us. That's, that's just for Jews or that's been done away with or whatever they're saying. I'm not pointing my finger at them and saying they're not believers. That's not, God is the judge, not me. I believe there are many believers who simply have been taught uh, incorrectly and have believed what they've been taught and God is patient with them. And we can only hope that there will be more and more who will see in the Torah something beautiful 
and something wonderful for life, for family life, in our work uh, uh, efforts, and so forth and so on. Well, there are those who use this passage to say, see, the evil workers were those who were telling the Gentiles that they should keep Torah. Uh, I don't know if Gordon Fee intends that by this paragraph, but it seemed to me that might be his his point. He might be saying something else, but in his commentary, um, he wrote, In trying to make Gentiles submit to Torah observance, Judaizers and their contemporary counterparts, the legalists, do not work righteousness at all, but evil, just as those in the Psalter work iniquity because they have rejected God's righteousness. But the scriptures clearly teach that the Torah is good and a great gift of God to his people. Now you say, well, that maybe just means the Jewish people. No, we all are his people. He promised that to Abraham a long time before Moses showed up. We read in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, The Torah of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Well, we see here that he uses every possible term to refer to the Torah. It enlightens the eyes. It rejoices the heart. It makes the simple wise. It restores us unto God in the way that he intends. And he says... The fear of the Lord, it's just another way of saying the Torah. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And of course, we have these words of Yeshua in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the Torah until all is accomplished. This means it's not set aside. This means it continues to be God's inspired word. Another in Romans 7.12, So then, the Torah is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. And then in 1 John 5.3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. <laughs> what does he mean? He means this is how we show love to God. How? By keeping His commandments. And when we do, it's not a burden on us. It rejoices our heart, even as the psalmist says. So what does Paul mean by the designation evil workers in our text? Well, in the immediate context, sandwiched as it is between dogs and false circumcision, the third one we'll come to, the meaning must center upon those in Paul's day who were teaching that having, quote, Jewish lineage gave a person a higher and more prestigious standing in the Ecclesia of Yeshua. Those who held such a position most likely also were teaching that Gentile believers ought to consider undergoing a recognized conversion in order to garner Jewish status within the believing community and thus forever to renounce their previous status as Gentiles. But of course, to do so not only neglects the promise made to Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, but also diminishes what it means to be in Messiah. That is, to have been redeemed by his life, his death, his resurrection, and intercession through the gift of faith, confessing that no one is able to effect one's own righteous standing before God, who is infinitely holy. Or to put it another way, 
to say that being in Messiah is not enough. Is that what they were saying? It seems as though it was. You're Gentile, you're in Messiah, but you're second class. It's not enough. In other words, if we look at it in the, as a whole, to have anything but faith as the basis by which we are granted righteousness in God's court of law, if there's anything else, we diminish the very work of Yeshua. And this is why the Reformers had as one of the five uh, solid realities and truths of their faith was sola, sola fide. Salvation is by faith alone, not by works, so no one can boast. But Paul makes it clear that to be in Messiah is to be fully accepted by the Almighty and to have a new and eternal relationship with God. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. It doesn't change one's ethnicity, one's relationship to one's family and larger uh, family and so forth. No. But what does it do? It makes all things new. Why? Because now you have Jew and Gentile together in one body, fulfilling the very promise made to Abraham. The old things that have passed away are the ungodly goals after which the unbeliever strives. These are replaced by an ongoing and maturing desire to bless God and to honor Him in all aspects of one's life. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul wrote, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That encompasses all of life, whatever you do, in our recreation, in our work, in our relaxation, in all that we do. We ought to have it in the front of our mind to give God the glory. And again in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And then we come to the third of these three in verse 2 of our text. He said, Beware of the dogs, beware of the false teachers, and now thirdly, beware of the false circumcision. Paul uses a word here for false circumcision, which is found nowhere else in the apostolic scriptures, nor even in the Septuagint. It, some have suggested, I don't know if this can be proven by any shake of the imagination, that he made it up himself. He put two words together and made a Greek word that fit his purposes. The Greek word meaning circumcision is peritome, which is made up of the preposition around, peri, and cutting, tomas. So, obviously, circumcision is cutting around. Paul has coined the word katatome, which literally means to cut into pieces, that is, to mutilate. His point is obvious. Those who teach that circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, is what gives them right standing with God, are actually viewed by God as having been dismembered. For the very reason God gave Abraham the commandment of circumcision was to teach the lesson that one cannot rely upon the flesh, that is, one's own works and ability, to bring about God's blessing and plan. For when Sarah was unable to conceive, she gave her handmaid, Hagar, 
to Abraham, and it was by her that Ishmael was conceived and born. Thus Ishmael was a symbol of what the flesh produces. In contrast, having been promised that God would give Abraham a son birthed by Sarah, God then gave the covenant sign of circumcision to emphasize that the promised son would not come by way of the flesh, but by the miraculous intervention of God himself. And that's exactly what happened, right? Sarah conceived, and she brought forth Isaac. So the whole point of circumcision was to remind Abraham and all of his descendants, and to remind us, that standing righteous before God, obeying God, is not something we're able to do in our own strength. It is the strength that's provided to us by God as He redeems us through faith in Yeshua and gives us His Spirit and enables us to walk in righteousness. Thus, circumcision as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant forever teaches that God's ultimate and eternal blessing cannot be earned by fallen mankind, that is, by so-called good works as man defines them, but by faith alone in the Messiah and His redeeming works. Such faith itself, the gift of God, always produces a life that honors the Lord by becoming more and more obedient to Him and in giving Him the honor and glory He deserves, thus being a testimony to others of His saving power. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, which includes the grace and the faith, and all of that is not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Ephesians 4.32 Paul uses the term false circumcision to describe someone who believes their status as a Jew or acquired Jewish status through the man-made ritual of conversion secures their eternal acceptance before God. But rather than having their fleshly status as gaining them acceptance before God, all of their righteous deeds are ruled as worthless, cut off in God's judgment. So, Paul is doing a little bit of tongue-in-cheek here, I think. He's saying to someone who is uh, trusting on the fact that they received circumcision as their way of having right standing before God, he's basically, in this text, telling them, you're as good as having it cut off, mutilated, botched. It has no value in terms of what they considered it to have value. The application of Paul's words in this verse are clear. We must never think that religious association, that is, having a membership in a given church or being a good person, etc., or having Jewish ethnicity or whatever, are the means of gaining right standing before God. Only the penalty for sin, paid by the very death and life of Yeshua, received by faith, brings the unspeakable gift of God's forgiveness and forever knits the believer's life together with the Almighty. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Maybe it's something that we have known and I don't say take for granted, but we've heard it so many times we don't contemplate it. We should. It should be at the very heart of who we are in the Messiah. This, together with Yeshua's own intercession, as well as the presence of the indwelling Spirit, enables the believer more and more to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to give God increasing glory as one matures in their life of faith. Moreover, the fact that both Jew and Gentile are united in the family of God means that we can rejoice 
and be glad that every nation and nationality will inevitably be represented in the body of Messiah. We are one in Messiah, and we therefore must strive to demonstrate this oneness as we all seek to become more and more like Yeshua, even as Paul now teaches in verse 3. He writes, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Messiah Yeshua, and put no confidence in the flesh. The NASB adds the adjective true, which may be implied in the Greek, but does not directly translate a word in the Greek. However, that the word circumcision has the definite article, the circumcision, does warrant the understanding that Paul is here emphasizing the reality of what circumcision, as given to Abraham, was to teach. And that is this, that being part of the eternal family of God cannot be achieved by one's own works, but only by coming to faith in Yeshua, who alone has secured right standing with the Father for those who come to him by faith. Now, I know there are those I've talked to uh, who say, well, how could Abraham have had faith in the Messiah? He did. Exactly how the, the Father, the Spirit of God, showed Abraham uh, what was coming in the distant future, we don't know. But even Yeshua himself said, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. This, as we noted earlier, was the very revelation of God to Abraham. Thus, those whom God calls to himself are drawn by his grace to admit their utter inability to please him in their own strength and willingly receive his gift of salvation, a gift that through the work of the Ruach transforms their lives to be living testimonies of his grace and saving power. Yes, God did reveal to people millenniums before the coming of the Messiah that he was coming, and it would be his work that would provide the way of salvation. As Paul teaches us in his letter to Titus, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Yeshua Messiah our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The scriptures are so clear <laughs> that we are saved by faith. And that faith is placed in Yeshua, that what he did, he did for me, and I believe he did it for me, and I trust that he did it for me, and I lay my life and hopes upon him. The application of this is obvious. As we live out our life of faith, we must always confess and affirm that all we are and all we hope to be are dependent upon God's unfailing mercy and power. Any and all successes we have in honoring him in our lives must accrue to his glory and praise. He says, who worship in the Spirit of God. The word here translated worship is the Greek verb latruo, which can mean to worship, but which in the Septuagint is very often used of the Levitical service in the temple. Thus we are reminded that true worship always includes genuinely serving the Lord by caring for one another within the community of faith, and thereby expressing the very love of God which sustains and motivates us to serve Him in all aspects of our lives. This, again, is why it is so important. I know I 
emphasized this uh, last Shabbat because of the Torah portion that we had in Deuteronomy uh, uh, 10 and following. But, brothers and sisters, God commands us to be helping each other. And the only way we can do that is to have some semblance of community. Maybe the community is very small. Maybe it's just within a, a few families or whatever. But we are born again to honor the Lord, to worship Him, and to serve Him. And serving Him includes serving one another. To care for each other, to pray for each other, to help one another. And we do that best when we have community together in, in one way or another. The phrase, in the Spirit of God, who worship in the Spirit of God, the phrase, in the Spirit of God, may likewise be understood to mean by by means of the Spirit of God, that is, by the power, wisdom, and strength, the indwelling Spirit of God enables the believer to serve others well. And this is because, those of you that know some Greek, when the dative can be a dative of means, by means of the Spirit, and oftentimes the dative is translated as in, but it can also be uh, by means of. As the prophet brought the word of God to Zerubbabel, we read in Zechariah 4.6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Well, that's as much true for us today as it was then in terms of our desire to live lives of honor and witness for the Lord and to honor him in all that we do. And we are to glory in Messiah Yeshua. The Greek word, kauksaomai, translated by the NESB as glory, can also carry the sense of boast. To glory or boast in the Lord is to give him credit for all that is good in our lives, including the sustaining power he gives to enable his children to persevere even through the difficult times encountered in this fallen world. When we boast in the Lord, it means we, we, we talk about his greatness. We talk about his love. We talk about his sovereignty. We talk about all that he is and all that he has done. And that's what to glory in the Lord means. That is to boast in his goodness. Surely this ought to become the very goal of our lives. To glory in the goodness of Yeshua and to let others know of his greatness. We are thus reminded that Messiah means the anointed one, emphasizing his power and sovereign control, while Yeshua emphasizes that he is the one who saves both now and for eternity. Well, he's anointed, and that was the sign in the ancient world of a king or a prince or someone who was given special honor. Yes, he is the one who deserves all of our praise and boasting. And Paul goes on to say, and put no confidence in the flesh. This is a fitting conclusion to the previous verses, for it summarizes what a life given over to the worship and praise of Yeshua should be. Not considering one's ethnic status, nor one's own privileges that such a status might afford one in the worldly circles of man's religions, but rather knowing and living out the truth that all that I am and all that I hope to be is dependent upon God's grace and promises, for it is by His strength that we live and move and have our being. As we read in Acts 17.28, For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of our own poets have said, for we also are His children.
Well, I know that there was a lot crammed into those two verses, but I hope it's been uh, encouraging and uh, helpful in terms of uh, just stirring us up to do God's work and to do it His way. So thanks again for coming and uh, sharing this time with us. We're glad to be together this way, and I again hope and pray that the Word of God will touch all of our lives for His honor and for His glory. Lord willing, we'll see you next week as we continue our study in this epistle of Philippians.